Hey, welcome back to Crimes and Closets. This is Christy in my closet in St. Louis. And this is Beth in my closet in North Carolina. Good morning, everyone. Welcome. (laughs) Welcome in. (laughs) How's it going out there? Happy Monday. That's what you're listening on? Yeah. I mean, I feel, well, I shouldn't say, I feel like most people listen on Mondays, but it could be just that their phone automatically downloads it on Monday and that's why we get to listen. Maybe. I don't know. I think we have a lot of people who do listen on Monday. Yes. Yes, we do. For sure. Anyway. So happy Monday <laughs> or whatever day. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. We have had so much fun on social media with you guys lately. So if you're not on there, you need to come do that with us. Because we have we played this little game where we said last week where we said, tell us what state you're from in just two words. And we had to guess it to see if we got it right. And we didn't a lot of mm-hmm. times get it right. Like more than like half. two times. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I was like, no, we didn't. Well. But it was so fun. I had so fun. much fun. <laughs> but that one lady tricked us. The Bucks one. Saying go Buck. She said go Bucks. Bucks. And we thought Ohio. I thought Ohio. You did. And I thought of Ohio too. But I was thinking everybody always says Buckeyes. Mm. And right now, like I explained to you, is playoff season and the Bucks are in it. And so I – and they are called Bucks. Right. <laughs> so – Yes. That's, so that yeah, was fun. I, yeah. We liked fun. to be was fun though. It was really fun. Yeah. Definitely here for that. So we'll do that more because that's really fun. We like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. What's up? Um, We've got a few new Patreons. Too. Oh, yes. Three more. Hello, closet. It always – it always – boggles my mind i probably probably say it all the time like how, like how many not that we have millions of people but like how many we actually have was like that maybe we'd have like two right and they would be like <laughs> related to us <laughs> which yeah, some exactly. of them are but my sister and your sister <laughs> right um so we have fabiana cheryl and leah my my sister yeah. So thank you guys. Thanks for supporting us. We appreciate it. We hope that you enjoy the content that you are receiving yes. on that platform. We have a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun things coming over there. And if you too would like to join, if you go to our bio, there's a link in our bio on Instagram, then that will bring you to a link of lots of things for us. But the first one on that page is the Patreon. Yes. Link. Or you can message us and I will send you a link. Yes. Yeah, I just trying to make it easy. On I got a message from a listener this week that was talking about how she was um, listening to the episode where I'm talking about the the leggings that made me look naked. Oh yeah, <laughs> and so <laughs> we were talking about that in my driveway yesterday because it was the same ladies that were with me, and I was like, "Man, I'm never going to live that down." I don't know why I told that story. <laughs> I was like, especially now that you put it out there to like, yeah, right, the world to no, hear. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That was so crazy. Yes. I don't remember what episode yeah. it was, but if you know, you know. Yeah, exactly. I can't remember what episode that was. I'd have to like write serious notes in my calendar next to <laughs> the episodes to remember when we oh, told gosh, whatever I know. story. We, ha- we, we haven't told a story in a while, I feel like. I know. We should we should uh, go back. We always have so much business together. to talk about in the beginning that we don't really tell a whole lot of stories. Well, I also feel like nothing really is like has been worthy. Well, you know, I went to the zoo 
we had spring break and I went to the zoo and when we were at the zoo, the gorillas were no pants dancing (laughs) right in front of the (laughs) glass. And yeah. And it's so funny because you could see, you know, at first they were like wrestling around or whatever. And then there was some, you know, clear mounting behavior and you could see like all the parents you could see all of us like just look at each other like time to go time to wrap right, it up like, move on. Oh, it's happening it's happening <laughs> yeah and this one gorilla pooped in his hand and then what in the world smelled it now and all of us, because when he pooped in his hand, we were like, oh, my gosh, he is pooping in his hand. And then we were all like, is he going to do it? Is he going to smell it? And then he did. And we were all like, oh, <laughs> very eventful at <laughs> the gorilla exhibit. <laughs> really funny. As soon as you said that, do you know who came to mind? A person? Uh, no. Yeah. Who? Langdon. Not because he has ever done that. Okay. But because he smells everything that is in his Oh. <laughs> like, that's how he, like, processes right. things. And so, like, he picks up something. It doesn't even have to be food. Like, he's just like, right. And he puts oh, he it up does his nose. Do that. I don't everything. Everything. Huh. Yeah. So, it, the, I, he has never done that with poop. <laughs> I can tell you nothing. But his his face entered my mind when you said <laughs> I will not tell him you said that. <laughs> One day he may hear this because this will be out there in the world <laughs> forever. Oh, yeah. If they ever get rid of podcasts, but <laughs> doubtful. So anyway. All right. So I guess are you ready I'm, to hear a crime? You tell me. Am I ready? I'm always ready. I was born ready, baby. Okay. Okay. But it's a tough one. Uh, they all are, but it's a tough one. Okay. Here we go then. We got another suggestion from our friends Danielle and Megan at Crime and Roses. <gasps> Hello, ladies. Yes. I love when they send us stuff. They I know. They do. They always have well, really I mean, intriguing cases. Right. They're yeah. so smart. Uh, they are. They are. Uh, and I guess this one was another one that was too close to home for them. And I believe they like people they know are involved or in some capacity uh, and not victims um, that I know of. So it happened in Atlanta again, and it's awful, awful. I mean, you may have heard of it, but okay. it's awful. It's just crazy. So hold on to your pants. Got them. It is a doozy. It has a lot of – um, sorry, uh, not holes, but like – yes, holes, but more in like background information. So just bear with me with okay. that kind of stuff. Uh, this is the case of Brian Nichols. Brian Jean Nichols was born December 10th, 1971. He grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Hello. And he went to Cardinal Gibbons High School. I know that high school. It's in and Raleigh. Why. Okay. So then he, really? Yeah. So then he, did he move, I guess? See, this is what I'm talking about. Like, but I know that name. And yeah. I was like, why do I know that name? Because I don't know much about Baltimore. Like, it's here. <laughs> okay. Well, Welcome in. Welcome in. <laughs> it, I wonder if there's one in Baltimore. I don't know. It's a Baltimore. private school. 
Okay. Very, very prestigious private school. It's extremely expensive. Okay. Well, that's where he went. He graduated in 1989. Again, not a whole lot is out there about his upbringing, except that he had a middle-class upbringing. It's said that he was emotionally distant from his parents because they worked long hours and not really around a lot, and that his father drank often and used marijuana quite often, which led to Brian using both of these things at a young-ish age. I'm not sure when he started, but said young. It's also stated that he was sexually abused by a cousin and his older brother and was bullied as a child. So all of these things are traumatic experiences for a young person and can affect clearly their emotional growth and mental well-being. So yes, it seems like you're setting a scene here. I am. Excuse me. Brian went to, I don't know how to say this, but Cutstown or Cootstown, K-U-T-Z, University in Pennsylvania. Okay. For three semesters from 1989 to 1990, he was a linebacker for their football team. Cool. Yes, but unfortunately. Yes, I'm assuming. Yes, pretty big. He dropped out, though, because it was only three semesters that he was there. While he was there, he was known as a troublemaker. He was arrested three times between 1990 and 1991. He was arrested for terroristic threats. Oh, my gosh. Don't know exactly. Don't know specifics. Simple aggravated assault, which it said simple assault, but when I looked that up, it basically was like the equivalent of saying aggravated assault from what I understand. If I'm wrong on that, somebody will point it out, but disorderly conduct and harassment. He pled guilty to the lesser charges and then the other ones were dropped. But it doesn't say if he served any jail time or if it was just like he was put on probation or whatever. So I don't I, I don't think he's spent any time in jail, though. In 1991, he was arrested two times in one month for trespassing, misdemeanor, criminal mischief, and disorderly conduct. conduct. And these charges were also later dropped. Unclear why. I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't really say. So... From 1992 to 1993, Brian attended Newberry College in South Carolina, where he again played football, but he got kicked off the team for stealing from a dorm room. Okay, Brian. We're going going down some sort of path here, Brian. In 1993, he again dropped out of college, but sometime in 1992, he became a father. Oh. And I only know that because in like a profile, it says he has two kids and said when when one of them was born. So- Somehow that happened during that college year. Well, I think we know I mean, how we it know happened. How. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that kind of podcast, though. <laughs> right, right, right. You need help with that. Find somewhere else. <laughs> so in 1995, it is said he moved to Georgia with his family. What family? I don't know. Mom, dad, girlfriend and daughter. I, again, holes. Okay. Somewhere north of the Atlanta area. And I know that based on where he worked. So whether he lived exactly where he worked, I don't know. But he lived in this area. He worked for Hewlett Packard for eight years as a Unix system engineer. Okay. Uh-huh. Had that not Very been quick. preceded by Hewlett Packard, I would have had a lot more questions. But <laughs> well. I still was just like, well, what does that mean? Because I still don't know what that meant. But it's very technical and has to do with computer systems and making sure that they all stay online online and whatnot. So cool. But so that's very, smart. very basic. Right, because he didn't graduate hmm. from college. So anyway, 
From 1996 to 1999, he is on probation for felony drug charge in Cobb County, Georgia, which is northwest of Atlanta area. It's like Marietta, Kennesaw in that ca- are in that county, which I know because that's where my middle guy is. Oh, okay. was born. Kennesaw. Cool. Um, <clears throat> so he was in possession of marijuana when he got that charge. In March of 2004, he starts a new job as a computer engineer for UPS. He's only there until September of 2004, though, because that is when he is arrested for the rape of his former girlfriend. Oh, no, Brian. No, no, no. Yes. His girlfriend of seven years, which means I'm assuming they started dating around 97. So I'm guessing that was after he moved to Georgia. So he's probably broken up with whoever he moved with. Again, holes. No, no. Uh, according to this woman, she found out that she, he had impregnated another woman. And so she was like, done. Sorry, we're over. I'm breaking it off. And again, this is validated by the fact that that profile I saw said that he became a father again in March of 2005, which would be in that time frame of that when he got her pregnant. Okay. <clears throat> so Brian did not want this relationship to end, though. But, well, why did you stray, Brian? Mm, That's my question. Mm, mm, mm. Anyways, and he would try to get back to her with her a couple of times, multiple times. She decided that, nope, sorry, I'm moving on. I'm not getting back together with you. And after several weeks, she started dating the minister from their church. And so when Brian found this out, he kind of lost it. He forced their way, his way into their home or her home after they came home from an, a dinner bound her with duct tape at gunpoint and raped her. Holy crap. Mm -hmm. He was arrested and charged with rape, aggravated assault with intent to rape, aggravated sodomy, burglary, false imprisonment, and possession of a firearm during the commission of a crime. Oh my gosh, this poor girl. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. When he went on trial in February of 2005, his first trial ended in a mistrial with a hung jury. Yeah. What? I don't know a whole lot of de- – these were some of the details that I was t- trying to get, but I was unable to find or procure. So he was offered a plea deal, apparently, which would have given him 15 years instead of the possible 25 years that a jury would likely have handed down in that second trial. But he turned it down because he was super confident that he was going to beat the trial, that he could like win over the jury because he's such a ladies' man. And he would – it would – and in his, you know, not in his conviction. So he was like, yep, no, I won't take that plea deal. I'm going to take this to trial again. And he's also been heard saying, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to go lying down. So he was just like, nope, I'm not just going to. He sounds give up like here. a real peach. Yeah. Well, you just wait. It just gets better. Oh. Well, not better, worse. He would have been retried a week later. Before the retrial, his friends warned the DA's office that he was going to try to escape. One of his friends said that Brian had asked him to leave a credit card in the suit pocket that he was going to wear during the trial so that when he escaped, he would have means to, you know, have money. Brian's own mother emailed the Fulton County Sheriff two days before the trial started saying she believed he was going to escape as well. So getting like warnings here. Come on, people. Are we listening? After the trial began, his own lawyer had a conversation with the judge, who he had known for 15 years, so he was kind of friends with this guy, on March 10th of 2005, telling him how much 
more erratic Brian's behavior had become and how dangerous he felt he was. His own attorney. His own attorney told the judge who was presiding over the case because they're friends. Whether this was like a conversation that should have been had, I don't know. But he was basically said, he's erratic right now and real dangerous. And the judge like patted him on the back and was like, be careful, you're the one sitting closest to him. So, mm -hmm. Brian had taunted the DA on one of the days of the trial after it started saying, you're doing a much better job this time. This guy said, Jim, holy smokes, what is going on? One of the days that he had been escorted back to jail, someone noticed that he had something in his shoe, and it turned out to be the like a metal door hinge that could have been used as a shank. Whether it was like carved or not, you know, into like a more sharp object, I don't know. But there's still like it could have, I'm sure, harmed somebody if you used it like with enough force. Just a couple of days before the end of the trial, the judge asked for heightened security as they were approaching um, the end of the trial and they knew he was going to be taking the stand. So they were just like, let's get some more security in here. Well, at least they did that. Well, I don't really know if it happened. On March 11th, 2005, Brian was brought to the Fulton County Courthouse in Atlanta, Georgia. Cynthia Hall, who is a 51-year-old sheriff's deputy, she's been, had been the one assigned to him like during the trial, like she would keep an eye on him at the courthouse, bring him to his holding cell to change clothes before the, you know, court date and everything. She had kind of formed somewhat of a relationship with Brian. She trusted him. She talked about family life and all this kind of stuff with him like a friend. Oh. And she had like told people, I trust this. Like he seems like a nice person. He's a ladies man. That's what he said. Yeah, he is. Mm -hmm, exactly. Manipulator. So that morning, she was asked several times by somebody else but to find a second deputy to help her escort him from the detention area to the holding cell that he would change clothes in. But she insisted, no, it's okay. Everything's been fine. We'll be all right. And she didn't even require him to wear the ankle shackles or the leg shackles that are supposed to be required while, while you're escorting the um, defendant there. So she did not put those on. She brought him into the holding cell and took one handcuff off and turned him around to take the other one off. Brian attacked her and pushed her into another open cell. He hit her in the face so hard her feet left the ground. He brutally beat her and it was all caught on surveillance in that like holding area because there's cameras there. Why? Why didn't he just hit her one time and escape if that's what he was trying to do? Why is he staying there and beat her? That was well, what he wanted to do was beat her? I I don't know. I guess he just wanted to make sure that she was not able to call for help. I I don't know. So he he's he's got her in this other cell. He locks her in that cell. Um oh, hold hold on a second. I wanted to say in the um hospital reports later, just so you know, it is said that the injuries were so severe that doctors thought she had sustained a gunshot to her face. Oh my gosh, poor woman. Yeah. Yeah. She's in and, her fifties? Yeah, fifty-one year old, like five foot something. Wow. Like, woman. Anyway, okay. She also, did survive the just attack, a side note. Mm -hmm. Assigning a fifty-one year old woman alone to watch over this man was not heightened security. Oh, heck no. 
That's why I'm saying I don't think any of this happened. And there was a full, which I don't get into in there, there was a full after this investigation on like the procedures and what happened during these hours of that I'm about to tell you and what was should have been done differently. Mm, like what so, went wrong. Yeah. And I'm not going to go into that just because it would, doesn't fit into this, but there was a, an investigation done. So she she does survive this attack, but she's in critical condition. So he comes out of the cell with her gun belt, which didn't have the gun because she had to put it in a like a lockbox. Thank God. But it has her radio and a magazine for all magazines for all of her weapons, and the keys. She had the keys for the lockbox, so he grabs the keys and goes and gets her gun from the lock. Oh my gosh! Brian then crosses over a footbridge to the courthouse and enters the judge Judge Barnes's chamber the judge who is providing, presiding over his trial. He holds three people in the office hostage while asking where the judge is. Another, it, While he's in there, another court bailiff enters and tries to take control, but Brian is able to disarm him and take his gun as well and locks him in the bathroom, but not before he's able. that guy's able to trigger a silent alarm. Nice. So security radios that, you know, or, that security officer, or maybe they're radioing everyone, I don't know, but he's able to, to get the radio and is trying to convince them that everything's fine, stand down, whatever. But he being they Brian? Knew, yes. Okay. So yes, sorry. But they knew that the voice on the other end was not anybody that was supposed to be on the other end. So anyway, he ends up leaving the chambers and enters the courtroom from behind the bench where Judge Barnes is sitting. And I'll tell you everything <gasps> that happens after this break. Okay. So are you ready? I'm ready. Hold, this is where you really need to hold on to your pants. I'm, it's going to get. Oh, no. What? So he's walked into the, the courtroom where Judge Barnes is already is, is really waiting for Brian to come in because he's supposed to be hearing his trial that day. Brian shoots Judge Barnes in the back of the head. <gasps> he never even knew he was behind him. Looks over at the pro- Brian looks over at the prosecution table, but the prosecutors weren't there yet. When the judge is shot, the court reporter, Julie Brandau, stood up to check on the judge, and Brian shoots and kills her instantly. Oh, my gosh, my gosh, my gosh. Meanwhile, the officer that was locked in the bathroom in the judge's chambers is able to get out and make the first real radio call for help at this point. People are just scrambling to get out of this courtyard. This court room. I'm sorry. I'm like mumbling over my words today. And apparently, like, is having to step over like this court reporter's body. To, oh like, my get gosh. Out. Oh, I cannot. Like, yeah. It, it was a scene, quite a scene. Brian then checks the side room, which apparently is where witnesses are held. And that it's assumed that he is looking for his ex girlfriend who's about to testify on her uh, against him. But she was running late that day. So she wasn't in there yet. Oh my gosh. Thank goodness for Atlanta traffic. Right. <laughs> Right. Brian then runs out of the courtroom and down an emergency stairwell where another officer comes across Brian in the stairwell. He had just gotten to work and had been responding to the alarm he heard and hadn't even had a chance to like put on his bulletproof vest or anything yet or a radio. So he didn't know exactly what was going on. So he chased Brian down seven floors and out of a a door, which triggered another alarm because it was an emergency exit. Brian shoots the gun two times in the air as he gets outside because it's like crowded Atlanta. And he so he creates chaos, you know, hoping to like mask his escape, oh I'm assuming. Oh, my gosh. 
And it's at this point that he fires twice at Deputy Hoyt Teasley, who had been the officer chasing him down the stairwell. And he becomes victim number three. (gasps) He then ran into a parking garage where he proceeds to steal an SUV. He drives this a few blocks and crashes it into another parking garage and then steals a tow truck from from the driver at gunpoint. He drives six more blocks and proceeds to steal another car. He tells the driver, who's a woman, to get into the passenger seat of the car. And he drives a bit and then stops and says, you know what, get in the trunk of the car. And she refuses and is able to escape. And she gets out of it. So a few minutes later, he carjacks another car. So what is this? Are we on car number four now? Yeah. He has the driver of this car sit in the floorboard of the car and demands his jacket so that he can change his appearance. So he's trying to put this guy's jacket on. And as he's doing that, the owner of the car sees an opportunity to escape. And as the car is driving, opens the passenger side door and jumps out. Good. Yes. He then enters another garage and carjacks his fifth car in 15 minutes. All of this in 15 minutes. He demands the owner get in the trunk trunk of the car, but refuses. The owner refuses. So Brian hits him in the head with the gun and takes the car. This man survives. He has a broken wrist and 15 stitches above his eye, but he's survived. Later that day, that car was found in the same parking garage it had been stolen from. Brian is just eluding cops by stealing and abandoning cars, and the cops are always like one car Mm. behind what he's got. And this is where they lose Brian. Oh, no. They find surveillance footage showing him in the stairwell of the garage with like another jacket on, which I think came from that last car. So he had a jacket from one guy, and then I think he stole another jacket. But nothing to indicate how he actually got out of the garage, like which exit he came out, nothing. So that night, they have him on America's Most Wanted. Wow. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Immediately. Let's put this guy. I mean, he went on a killing spree and was like terrorizing downtown Atlanta. As they're naming the streets that he's driving down, I'm like, oh my gosh, I know these streets. And I've, I mean, I've been there a couple of times, but not enough to be like, I know all the streets in Atlanta. I mean, I know Peachtree was one of them that he was going down. You know, I'm sure you, I don't know if you know that. Yeah. It's like the main, one of the main drags. So Brian also called 911 at some point that afternoon while one of the news conferences was happening. And he threatened to kill the two assistant district attorneys that were trying the case when he calls 911. What prompted him to do that? I don't know, but he's clearly out of his mind. It is believed that Brian went unnoticed through a crowded street into the subway that day. And then for the next 13 hours, they have no idea where he is. Apparently, like there was the NCAA, part of the NCAA tournament was there that weekend. So there was just a ton of like people in town in general. And so it would have been easy for him to get like lost downtown. During that time, the 13 hours that they don't know where he is, Brian attempted to take a woman hostage and rob her outside her apartment building. When they got to her apartment, he was surprised by the woman's boyfriend who shoved his girlfriend inside and then attacks Brian. Brian fled on foot after hearing the girl frantically calling 911 inside the apartment. So Hmm. he's like, nope, got to get out of here. Not far down the road is ICE agent David Wilhelm's home. It is believed that Brian stole his wallet, gun, and pickup truck and shot that agent as well because he was victim number four. Wow. How would he know? He didn't know. It's assumed that he was just – because it was like blocks away – 
or five minute walk that he was just trying to, you know, find out or find a place to hide out. And this, I believe, not not believe, this guy's house was under construction. So it's possible that he thought it was empty and went in and then was surprised when this guy was there, not knowing he was, you know, in law enforcement in some capacity. But we know that this guy was killed because the next morning his body had been found by the carpenters that came to work that morning, like in his bedroom. Oh my God. And, so, and then later it's put together that it was Brian that did it. So around 9.50 a.m. on March 12th, the phone call comes into 911 saying that Brian Nichols was at the Bridgewater Apartments in Duluth, Georgia, which is about 27 miles north of Atlanta. A SWAT team arrived, and after a bit, Brian walks out of the building waving a white towel. They found three stolen guns, three, Agent Willem's wallet, which is now how they've connected him to that death, and his pickup truck was found about two miles away. And one of the guns was Agent Willems. What was late? What was learned later on was that around two a.m., Ashley Smith. So enter, enter the the angel here. I'm going to tell you. Okay. Right now. I'm already going to name her the angel. Went out to buy a package of cigarettes. When she returned to her apartment, Brian was there and forced his way into her apartment at gunpoint. I believe he had gone to this apartment complex because he had been there before, maybe knew people. He did not know her. Okay. They thought that it was a possibility at first, but they then found out that it, he did not know her specifically before. He tied her hands and feet up, took shower, like hung out there. They chatted for hours. Ashley had a daughter that she was supposed to visit that day. She was afraid that she would never get to see her again because her daughter was living with her aunt because Ashley had struggled with an addiction to meth. So she had kind of lost custody for a little bit and she was supposed to go visit her that day. So she was trying to befriend Brian because she just wanted to be able to get to see her daughter again. And she wanted to gain his trust yeah, and whatnot. So smart. Yeah, exactly. So eventually he unties Ashley because he felt comfortable. He asked her for some marijuana, but all she had was meth. So he asked her, would you, you know, I want you to use this with me. And she was like, no, last time I did, it was 36 hours ago. I don't know if she used those words, but it was said that she last used it 36 hours before this, um, this time. And she didn't want to be on anything when she went to see her daughter. So she's trying to be clean. Nice. So instead she started to read the Bible to him. And also the book, The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. Have you read that book? Yes. <laughs> well, I, like I haven't read the whole thing actually, but I liked it. So she's reading different things from the Bible in this book to him. She told him stories of how her husband had died in her arms after he had been stabbed in a bar, in a brawl. I don't know if it was a bar brawl. It's a brawl. I'm assuming it was. And she showed him a scar that she had on her torso area that was caused from a car accident that happened due to a drug-induced psychosis. She was kind of trying to, like, let him know, like, this is what drugs does, like, do do to you. Like, right. Come on. Like, he, there's better paths, whatever. I don't I mean, she's, like, I, she's amazing to me because I'm pretty sure I've just been crying my eyes out. 100%. Like, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me the whole time. Like, I don't know that I would have gotten to this point. But almost, anyway. She's, like, trying to help him. Yeah, like, come on, you can is. do better. Yeah, so basically, she's, I think she's trying to convince him to like turn himself in. Yeah, this entire time. So, um, anyway, she got into that car accident. She actually said that she had let go of the steering wheel because she heard a voice that said "Let go and let God," 
And so that, that was what had happened while she was on drugs. She was trying to show him the danger of drugs. As I said, they saw a news conference um, about the events of the day on TV. And he told Ashley that he needed to help. He needed help getting the truck that David Willems truck out away from this apartment complex. So they, so that he could, you know, steer the cops in a different direction. So she followed him in her car as he drove the truck and parked it two miles away. So here's where I'm sure everybody would be like, okay, you're in your car behind him. Yeah, make a sharp left or right and get the heck out of there. Like, go. She says that she didn't try to escape because she was afraid of who he would kill if she didn't do what he wanted to do. Oh and she gosh. wanted to end it. She wanted him to stay with her so he didn't hurt somebody else. Yes. Wow. Hence why I said, enter Angel Ashley. Wow. When they returned to the apartment, she cooked him breakfast. She talked to him about allowing her to leave to be able to see her daughter that day, and he finally agreed. When she leaves the apartment to go see her daughter is when she placed a 911 call to say where he was at. Brian was taken to the FBI field office in Decatur because he was initially being held on a federal charge of possession of a firearm by a person under indictment. I guess that's a federal charge. Right. Then he was transferred to the Atlanta police station where he confessed on videotape and gave details of the crimes in a three and a half hour statement without a lawyer present. He felt he was a soldier on a mission to take revenge on the judicial system he felt was unfair to African-Americans. He felt he was about to go to jail for a crime he did not commit because he was pleading not guilty to the rape. Oh, okay. So he started all of this right. because of that trial. A DA who saw him shortly before take it, being taken into custody said Brian seemed to be proud of what he had done and did not show any remorse. Brian was indicted on May 5th, 2005 on 54 counts, including murder, felony murder, kidnapping, armed robbery, aggravated assault, aggravated battery, theft, carjacking, and escape from authorities. He pled not guilty on May 17th, January 2007, finally, jury selection begins for this. The initial judge assigned recused himself due to the fact that he had been friends with Judge Barnes, okay. who was the first victim. So he decided to take himself off the case. The judge who took over suspended the trial indefinitely in January of 2008 because the state public defender's office had cut, like they had budget cuts and they cut funding to Brian's lawyers. So they had no funding to be able to like pull together a, a good defense. So he suspended the trial until they could get it. There was a whole bunch of delays in this trial. Okay. Including the fact that they had to get a new judge and all that kind of fun stuff. Anyway, there was a budget crunch, like I said, and apparently he was supposed to, he was going down as being one of the most expensive defendants in Georgia history, I believe. Wow. Yeah. So I guess they didn't want to be like chance the fact that he's like, I didn't get a good defense. So we, you know, and that's one of the reasons to come back, I, you know, so it's true. I mean, and because they killed their own, you know what I mean? Like the judge and the security right. officer and the court reporter and all that stuff. It's like, these are their people. So they're going to be more like willing to do it right the first time. Right. Yes. Make sure that it, nothing, there's no holes that can, he can loopholes that he can find. Eventually the trial was scheduled to take place in July in the same courtroom that he had murdered two people. 
So clearly now we have to get a change of venue. Oh, <laughs> so my. Another, you didn't think of that another, before. Right. Another delay. It's a short delay. I think they said that had to be like changed within 10 days. While awaiting trial, it is discovered that he was planning to try to escape again. I believe that. And apparently his girlfriend, I have no idea who his girlfriend is, <laughs> and two deputies that were being paid off were allegedly trying to help him. I don't, this is not confirmed. Like, I don't know how they were trying to help him. I know it is stated that the girlfriend was supposed to go to like the, um, like Home Depot. I don't even know if that's the one it is, but you know, a store and get all of these supplies so that he could cut his way through the cement. <laughs> like, it's a ridiculous to even think that he would be able to do that, but whatever. It's ridiculous it's all, what he did though. I would not put well, anything past this man. That is true. That is true. His trial finally starts on September 22nd, 2008. He entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. They opened the trial with playing the audio tape of the shootings of Judge Barnes and Julie Brando, Brandau, whose her tape recorder had been recording the whole time because she's the court reporter. And it continued. And so they played this, this recording for the jury. They called witnesses to debunk his insanity plea. Brian said he only shot Agent Willem after he drew his weapon on him. But a forensic expert reported that when the ICE agent was killed, he was kneeling down or like standing kneeling towards Brian because it was shot. He was shot in a downward trajectory and that his thumb was injured like in the shot. So it was like his, his thumb was somewhat shot, like the tip of his thumb, mm -hmm. which they said could have happened if he was holding a gun at him. But the gun also that he was holding apparently had no damage to it. So you would think that it – I would think that it would have some damage to it if that it came that close to shoot his thumb. Right. Right? Well, you don't stick your thumb out when you're holding a gun. Like that's odd to even – Well, so I don't know. That's why they – I don't know. But that's what they said. The expert said it could have happened if he was holding a gun. Anyway, I don't – whatever. So – um, Cynthia Hall. Let's go back to her. She's the one that was guarding him when he first made his escape. Yes. Could not testify because she's basically now an invalid. Oh, no. She has no memory. <gasps> she's blind in her right eye. Her eyelid droops. She has brain damage with memory issues, difficulty with speech, and difficulty walking. So she's- Oh, no. Like, unable to testify. It's basically, I mean, I, I consider her- like the fifth victim in this because she doesn't have her life as she knew it. I mean, she has no life living that way. That's anyway. She as Cynthia Hall, I feel like died in that day, even though she's still physically alive. Friends of hers had to testify about her relationship with him because she used to talk about him to them and how she trusted him trying to debunk the insanity plea. Like Cynthia liked him. Like he seemed normal to her and never, she never came home saying, gosh, this guy's nuts, you know, whatever. Right. Basically. They brought this, they brought up the original rape trial and how insanity was never in play in that trial and that they never so, saw signs of that during that trial either. Like, yeah, maybe a little cocky and arrogant, but not insane. The defense called the ex girlfriend that he allegedly ra raped. Why the defense calling the ex girlfriend? And she went through the whole ordeal prior to the rape and how he didn't handle the breakup well and that he called saying he was going to complete suicide and that she should take the dog. So they were trying to say, well, he was in a different mental state and they were using his rape victim in this as his defense. How, 
how twisted is that? I, I'm sorry. I had to reread that so many times when it said the defense called her. Like, what? She's being used? Anyway, I'm sorry. Sorry. Uh, she also went into details on the attack on her. And so, anyway, basically, like I said, they were using this to show how he was mentally falling apart at this point when she broke up with him. Because yeah. then he went crazy, raped her, blah, blah, blah. She's essentially like a character witness showing that he has bad character. Like, he's unhinged. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's really weird. <laughs> Twist. It's, it's just twisted. twisted yeah. <laughs> oh. So they called his previous attorney to the stand to talk about how he was increasingly getting erratic and that he believed um, he was getting dangerous. Like I told you, he had talked to the judge about prior to it and how Brian had told his attorney, original attorney, that his ex-girlfriend would never testify him in, against him in the rape trial because she still loved him. And so he, they were using that to show how twisted his mind was. Like he was still convinced that she still loved him at that time. <laughs> And wouldn't go through with testifying against him. A psychiatrist testified about Brian's mental state as well. He talks about the trauma from when he was younger, which I mentioned earlier. And he mentions that in college, Brian started to show some extreme beliefs in essays that he wrote. In these essays, he says he believes there is an organized and deliberate attempt by whites to eradicate the black race by imprisoning black men and keeping them from having children. In one of these essays, he writes, and this is quotes, if violence can be a righteous tool for the white men, then surely it can be used as a righteous tool for the black man. If violence can be used to murder defenseless women and children in South Africa and Vietnam, then surely it can be used to defend the human rights of dark-skinned people all over the world. He paralleled the conditions of jail to slavery saying there was labor without pay, poor sanitation, you're wearing chains. He even compared white Judge Barnes as a slave master. Hmm. The psychiatrist said he became so disillusioned that he thought he was at war with the government and that he did not know right from wrong, even as he pulled the trigger. The psych psychiatrist read an ex another expert excerpt, but this one from Brian's confession. I felt as though I was a slave rebelling. I was a slave rebelling against the government of the United States. As a, as a soldier, I don't feel as though I committed any war crimes. Slaves have a tendency to rebel. And as a result, I felt as though it was my right as a human being, basically, to rebel as a slave. And I felt that it was my right to declare war on the United States government. Now, Wow. Well, I get the terrorists thing from earlier in the story. Right. Um, he does sound really disillusioned, though, in a lot of this. I think he truly believed that stuff. Probably. I'm guessing. Uh, yeah. On November 7th, 2008, after the jury deliberated for 12 hours, they found him guilty on all 54 counts. On December 13th, 2008, he was sentenced to multiple life sentences with no chance of parole and to hundreds more years on that, on that added on to that for more than 50 of the other charges. Sorry. He was spared the death penalty because the jury was unable to reach a unanimous decision, and that's required by Georgia law. Mm -hmm. Years after Brian broke his silence and gave an interview, he stated that he deserved to be in jail and that that day defined him, and it was difficult to imagine the loss that occurred based on what he did. He didn't know how he ended up there. He felt marijuana really messed up his life, and he said he can't change the past but can try to be a better person. 
He sounded very sane in that interview. Almost like, I don't know, I don't want to say reformed, but I don't know, was it drugs that caused him to sound so crazy? I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, what are your thoughts? Well, I don't think that sane people do what he did. Like no. The spree that he went on. There's no question that he had to have some level of psychosis going on at the time that it occurred. I don't think that he was an insane person. I think that he was angry. Mm. And he's right. The judicial system is unfair to African-American yes. men. And there's no way that you can argue it's not. I think that he truly felt like he needed to get revenge. And when you are doing something with a purpose like that, you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think he deserves to be in prison for the rest of yes. his life. Yeah, I agree. And he, apparently he agrees that he deserves to be where he is at this point in life. I don't know when that interview was. I think it was several years ago, but... That is a horrific story. It is a horrific story. And it, and it happened March 11th. So clearly, it, well, I mean, by the time this airs, it we, the anniversary will have passed. And um, the, a judge posted on the anniversary and basically recounted the events, but never named him because she did not want to contribute to his unwarranted celebrity status. And it made me so sad that I was going to be like saying this guy's name. I just, that's why, honestly, that's why I only said like his first name for the whole time because everybody in all other articles always referred to his last name. Okay. And I feel like, I don't know, like Brian's just Brian. It's just a Brian. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I had to say his name in the beginning, but then yeah. I'm not referring to him by like what he, now you can, you'd have to go back and listen. <laughs> If you want to find out his middle, first or last name. And anyway, um, I don't know. I was sad to read all that and and think about, yes, he's getting more notoriety now. But I do want to take it away from him right now. And I want to give it up to the badass Ashley. Ashley Smith. in the house. Oh, my yeah. gosh. She saved Who, so many people probably. No kidding. She may have struggled in her life with addiction and maybe didn't make all the best decisions, but she made the decision to try and save other people because she was afraid of what he would do if she didn't do that. At the expense and, of her safety and life. Yes. Yes. And after that night, she got off meth for good, got her daughter back. She tells her story as often as she can to motivate others, and she's working as an x-ray technician, well, as of 2015, which was the last like article that I could find of this. Amazing. And does, does one speaking arrangement a month, and there's a movie called Captive that tells the story of Ashley and that night. And also, she's written a book called Unlikely Angel, The Untold Story of the Atlanta Hostage Hero, which I did not read, but I would like to read. So there's a book recommendation to you, even though I don't know if it's good or not. I'm applauding. Yeah. Applauding. A round yes. of applauding. applause for Ashley. And also, just as a last note, let's remember all that had lost their lives that day. Judge Roland Barnes, who was 64, Julie Brandau, who was 46, Sheriff Deputy Hoyt Teasley, who was 43, ICE Agent David Wilhelm 
which was who was 40. And like I said, truly Cynthia Hall, who survived but really lost her life as she knew it that day. And countless other victims who had their cars stolen and were injured and have mm-hmm. trauma. Mm-hmm. Wow. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Wow, mm-hmm. Crime and Roses. Yeah. That was a case. Yeah, that kidding. was a suggestion, all right? Yeah, it was. It was. Ooh, I don't, bless yeah. your heart having to research all that. You did good, yeah. girl. You did good. I I hope I did because I like clearly there was lots of like specific details that I didn't keep in there, but like I ugh, ugh. just so many victims. It's really hard to hear to research things like that that just go on and on and on and it's like mm-hmm. the tragedy never ends. Yeah. Wow. The fact that he was able to manage to escape like that, it's like, oh my goodness, it just makes me so nervous. Like my brother's an attorney Mm -hmm. and it makes me nervous for him because like he's in courtrooms all the time and, oh. Yeah. There was a, like I said earlier, there was an article that you could read like the investigation of what they looked into of like whatever the criteria or whatever I can come up with the word. They looked at the details of that day and what went wrong and what they needed to like change and with security and whatever in the courthouse. And there's a whole article that like dealt with the details of that investigation. So hopefully things have changed. Yeah. I don't know. I guess we can ask our friends. Have things changed guys? Yeah. You guys are in Atlanta. <laughs> My gosh. I sure hope so. That's really scary. Just takes yeah. one. It just takes one crazy person right delusional person Mm -hmm. yeah wow okay that's a wrap yeah it is thanks for telling the story i feel relieved i bet you too (laughs) i feel haunted (laughs) i mean just let it out and i just am taking it all in so You're- it's also like it's 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 stressful enough to do these every week, honestly, because you want to do everything justice. You don't want to like upset people. You don't want to offend anybody in anything you say clearly. But it's like also oh, your friends. Your friends gave you this case, and you don't want them to be like, "Ah, gross, guys, come on." Wow. <laughs> you know, like- <laughs> no, you did a good job. <sighs> all you can say is the facts. Yeah. That's all that's you true. can do. True. So all we can report on is what's reported on. And then, you know, that's what you guys are for is to pick up and let us know what you think and how, you know, you interpret it and stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, good job. Good case. Awful case, but well done. And now we're done for this Monday. So we hope you guys enjoyed it. Come find us on social media. If you like what you hear, we have a Patreon. You can come and join Um, and we love you and always remember the world is scary. People suck. Hide in your closet.